Hello, I'm Nadia Singh and welcome to IDSA's podcast series, COVID-19, What's Happening Now? Our intent is to keep IDSA members, medical professionals, and the public informed during this rapidly evolving outbreak by talking with experts in the field of infectious diseases. These podcasts will be produced weekly or as often as necessary as we monitor the fluid nature of COVID-19. In this episode, we'll be discussing the supplemental funding bill signed by President Trump on March 5th in response to the COVID-19 outbreak. Here to discuss that are Dr. Andy Pavio with the University of Utah, Dr. Matt Zahn, an Orange County Health Department official, and Dr. Dodd Siraj with the University of Wisconsin. All are experts on infectious disease outbreaks. Moderating this installment is Amanda Jezik, IDSA's Senior Vice President of Public Policy and Government Affairs. Thank you, Nadia, and thank you to our panelists for joining us. Before we jump into our discussion, I want to provide a bit of background on what was included in the supplemental funding bill and mention that the bill followed persistent calls from public health experts and healthcare providers, including IDSA members. The approximately $8 billion bill includes over $2 billion for surveillance, laboratory testing, tracing to identify new additional cases, infection control, and mitigation activities. It allocates over $3 billion for the research and development of vaccines, therapeutics and diagnostics, and provides nearly $1 billion for healthcare preparedness, which can support procurement of personal protective equipment, or PPE, and other medical supplies and medical surge capacity. On the global front, the bill provides $735 million for global health response activities and an additional $550 million for global economic, security, and stabilization activities. In addition to the new funding, the bill expands the option to utilize telehealth in the COVID-19 response by allowing healthcare providers to provide telehealth services to Medicare beneficiaries, regardless of whether the patient is in a rural community. My first question is for Dr. Pavia. Dr. Pavia, as someone who's been involved in advocacy work with IDSA for many years, let me start with a broad question for you. Is this roughly $8 billion enough for our healthcare system to respond to and contain this outbreak? So, Amanda, one way of thinking about it is how would we have spent that money if it had been available over the last several years as IDSA has advocated for? We would have improved our stockpiles of PPE. We would have improved our readiness. Uh, We would have been able to stand up the kinds of outdoor testing that people are now scrambling to do. So the money um, will help. It's not clear yet how much is really needed. From the point of view of medical centers, the needs are pretty robust. We need to be able to care for patients who don't have funding. We need to be able to develop and deploy testing very rapidly. Here at the University of Utah, ARUP is doing that, but as everyone knows, that has been a slow and difficult process because some of the regulatory reform that IDSA has advocated for has been slow in coming. Uh, There's a need for doing overflow and um, outdoor triage, as well as just trying to deal with the fact that no healthcare system has enough surge capacity to handle a big influx of very sick patients. So I don't know if I answered that question or went off on a tangent, but um, money doesn't substitute for preparedness. Thank you. That is an excellent point, and I'm glad you raised it. We have heard from many IDSA members that preparedness funding is just as important as the emergency funding to address the current pandemic. 
You spoke about how this funding could be used at your healthcare facility and other academic medical centers like yours. Do you think this funding could also be useful at other types of healthcare facilities, for example, community hospitals or outpatient settings? Well, I'm not familiar enough with the details of legislation to see how that's going to work, but there's going to be a huge need throughout the community. Um, And that's not just community hospitals, but there are all of the facilities that take care of our most at-risk patients, Um, clinics for the homeless, uh, for people from underserved minority communities. They operate on a shoestring, and they will be very stressed. They're not the ones who are going to be doing the clinical trials, um, doing the rapid research that we need to help with a response, but they're going to be taking care of many of our most vulnerable and at-risk patients. Absolutely. Thank you, Dr. Pavia. Dr. Zahn, turning to you, as a public health official in a major city, do you think this level of funding is enough to respond to the pandemic? Yeah, thanks, Amanda. I, I think that we can say that the cost of response to this event is going to be far greater than this number. I think we all know that. Uh, I think the, the goal uh, presumably is to, to uh, juice the system, so to speak, or to enhance response uh, right now and then, you know, presumably uh, provide assi- more assistance as you go along. Right now, if you, if, as I think through what this helps us do, I mean, the clear thing that jumps out to me from the public health side right now is boosting testing capacity. And I think we all know how important it is to be able to uh, have the capacity to run those tests, to have those tests done and to run those tests and get answers for patients. At the same time, there's a lot that goes in to that testing. One is having that capacity, meaning having enough uh, protective equipment that that testing can be done safely by providers. That means having enough capacity for local public health potentially to assist with that testing. I think people are watching the news and seeing in uh, Seattle, they're all, they've already arranged for a drive-by uh, testing process. I think for all of us, we worry a bit about stressing, overwhelming our system our medical system by having people who are not extremely ill getting tested, yet they want to be tested and we want to be able to provide that testing to them. So it's not just a matter of being able to run those tests, which is really an important, important resource to have. It's also a matter of having the staff and the other resources that go around being able to test a large number of people in a community in a short period of time. Absolutely. We've certainly seen that testing is a central concern in our response to COVID-19. Can you speak to any other activities for which you feel these resources will be particularly helpful from a public health perspective? Yeah, I mean, I think that you, you just think through what what we're doing for every individual case. And I think people are starting to, you know, they're starting to see the contours of it just from what you read in the news. But if you, as soon as you have a person who tests positive, from a public health side, one, we have to talk to that person and make sure we know where that that person can stay either in a hospital or in an outpatient setting where they're safe and not infecting other people in, in both situations. You have to make sure that the people who are around them, family members, loved ones who may live with them in that house, that they are found an appropriate safe place to be and that they are monitored over several days to make sure that they don't get sick and to make sure if they get sick, they get treated appropriately. And then you have to think about the larger exposure in healthcare setting. You know, Dr. Pivia mentioned the, the costs associated with healthcare settings. Uh, 
responding to people who are potentially exposed in the healthcare setting, both patients and healthcare workers. It's going to be so important to continue to have a robust response to identify those persons, educate them, and follow them. There's a lot of work involved in every single patient. So uh, unfortunately, it's far more than testing of the virus. And as I would say, the same as Dr. V, it's not totally clear exactly how all of that funding is going to be uh, is going to be applied, but there's a lot of different directions in public health uh, where resources are going to be needed. So I was just going to emphasize Matt's point because I think a lot of people listening may be involved in the hospital response. You know, and the public health response really doesn't stop at the hospital door. It involves uh, all of the hospital epidemiology contact tracing within the healthcare system. So it's one area where we really have to partner, um, and again, where the resources are stretched very thin. Yeah, that's exactly right. I can tell you in Orange County, and I'm sure people you know, around the country, whenever you're dealing with a case, it's always public health working with those healthcare facilities, working with those hospitals. And just as Dr. Pavia said, what's the you know, what, who, who has the resources on which side? It's a shared responsibility, but both sides are really, really stretched already. Dr. Zahn, I have one more question for you. Dr. Pavia brought up the issue of preparedness and how much healthcare systems could have done if they had received this funding well in advance of this public health emergency. Can you speak to preparedness needs in public health? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think, I think of it in two different directions, Amanda. One is right now we are hiring temp nurses, we are hiring temp physicians, um, and, you know, I'm sure we'll be looking at uh, uh, epidemiology staff that are sort of surge hired up to, to help us. And uh, those uh, that assistance is really, really important. But the more you have that capacity existent before the event happens, the more effective your response is. And so uh, I think a lot of local health departments and state health departments are scrambling at this point to get on, the necess- on board the necessary staff to respond to an event. Clearly, uh, having that staff ready on board and trained to begin with makes more for a more effective response from, from the word go. So I, we're, we're playing some catch up here. There, there's no doubt about it. I think the other side, I, you know, I always think from a local public health side is, um, you know, I can't emphasize this enough. I think I always mention this when people ask it. There's been some hollowing out of number of staff in local public health, just period, not just in communicable disease control, but in a lot of other programs. And in public health, we don't just bring on staff that, you know, for, you know, temporary staff or higher surge staff, we bring staff from other programs. Our ability to do that is lessened and it gets harder and harder the more public health programs just in general have their funding whittled away. So it's, it, it's a struggle and it's, it's harder now than it was probably five years ago. And that's just where we are. Absolutely. Let's turn now to a global perspective. I'll turn to Dr. Siraj. Dr. Siraj, you work to improve medical care in resource-limited settings. What is your assessment of the global response so far? Thank you, Amanda. Um, This is an unprecedented time. I just came back, actually, from Ethiopia. Um, And I can say uh, with certainty that no single country can claim that they are uh, prepared as Dr. Pavia uh, said it and Dr. Zhang also alluded to, uh, we uh, haven't invested much in public health and preparedness 
and adding into that the magnitude and the need uh, of coronavirus outbreak being unprecedented, uh, this is creating a stress in every community. Uh, when uh, resource-limited countries um, stress their capacity to respond to this crisis, uh, to look at if the outbreak was to hit them, uh, if they can really respond, uh, they're finding that none of them are capable of handling the massive numbers that are seen, uh, like in China or Italy. Uh, especially, this is true in uh, sub-Saharan African um, countries. The world is now challenged with this, uh, what appears to be a pandemic uh, respiratory illness, and every day the number of cases are increasing, the number of countries that are reporting are uh, increasing, and uh, considering the way how this is being transmitted and the global mobility of uh, humans in general, I think this number is going to continue rising, and I would say um, at the, at the, at the uh, global community, um, our preparedness hasn't been uh, there uh, to to really mitigate this uh, outcome. Uh, as uh, has been said, IDAC and Global Health Subcommittee has been advocating uh, to support resource-limited uh, countries so that they can strengthen their capacity to identify outbreak like this when it happens early and also control and contain outbreaks when they happen. This has been the case in case of Ebola. This has been the case in case of SARS and uh, H1N1. Um, Unfortunately, we haven't invested much in the public health sector, and it looks like COVID uh, is going to be the extension of this. So in general, to just put it in words, uh, I don't think anyone is ready, but uh, this is much more dire in uh, low and uh, middle income countries uh, who have limited resources. Certainly, thank you for that perspective. The bill includes $735 million for global health response activities and an additional $550 million for global economic, security, and stabilization activities. So I'll pose the same question to you that I have to Drs. Pavia and Zahn. Is that amount of funding enough? And how do you see the funding being put to use at a global level? Well, as we are addressing this uh, particular outbreak, I just want to, to emphasize that as a world community, we are uh, as strong as our weakest link. Uh, the countries that have a very limited capacity to detect and contain an outbreak uh, are going to be our uh, weakest point that uh, needs attention. So if you look if, with that background, if you look at the new uh, uh, approved uh, uh, appropriated budget uh, that Congress has appropriated, around $735 million actually is going to go to global health response activities. It's not clear how it is going to be distributed, when uh, that is going to be a big, big um, uh, issue. But this is a good start. And uh, if it is released quickly and reach the countries that are really in dire circumstances to improve their capacity, uh, it will go a long way uh, to strengthen their capacity to respond to this crisis. Uh, I mean, at a basic level, from the timely and adequate testing kits that they are limited right now, uh, to creating isolation centers, quarantine facilities, um, which are fully functioning and capable, uh, and also the, the uh, training the healthcare professionals and stocking uh, the personal protective equipment like masks and isolation gowns, which are really limited uh, and in short supply right now, 
um, and also improving their ICU uh, capacity, including the number of beds, number of ventilators and oxygen supplements. This will be very, very uh, helpful. Um, it would not be enough, obviously, as uh, Dr. Zan has alluded, uh, none of us are really prepared to, to estimate the amount of money that would be needed to, to, to respond to this kind of uh, pandemic, uh, but it will be very helpful. Uh, now it looks like a long time back, but a couple of, uh, a couple of weeks back, WHO has announced that it needs around 675 million uh, for global preparedness, just to support uh, the countries with limited resources. And this was only until April. But unfortunately, out of that, only 150 million was uh, pledged. So coming up with this amount of money from Congress, if it is really appropriated very quickly uh, and reached to the right places, I think this will go a long way and also... Um, uh, it will actually activate the other countries also to respond uh, uh, to this uh, pandemic. Thank you very much. It is clear that we will all have our work cut out for us, not only on the COVID-19 response, but on preparedness for the next infectious disease threat. Before we conclude, I'd like to see if any of our panelists have any closing comments they would like to make. Dr. Pavia, let's start with you. There's so many things we could say, but I think from the point of view of our advocacy, it's really important that we take, uh, we keep in mind that as we get through this particular pandemic, and it is a pandemic, that we need to move from this sort of emergency funding and responding and lurching from crisis to crisis to really putting the resources in that we need to have a, a functioning response system from top to bottom, from research at NIH to uh, government, uh, state and local public health, to preparedness in the hospitals, diagnostics, community preparedness. We always forget you know, that you have to invest in the fire department before your house catches fire. And if history is any guide, we won't remember to do that. Thank you very much, Dr. Pavia. Dr. Zahn, any final comments? Well, mainly, Amanda, my, my thought is that I, I, from a public health side, I tremendously appreciate IDSA's commitment to support of public health. You know, I think that so our IDSA is a composed of a large number of members, you know, individuals, but um, it, it's not obviously just uh, clinicians that IDSA has been advocating for. It's been for the good of public health. And I think that sort of mirrors what a lot of infectious disease physicians do in the, in our, and uh, infectious disease-oriented providers. They're not just aware of the individual patient in front of them. They're, they're thinking about uh, the public's health and the public's well-being from a larger perspective. Really appreciate that support. And if we're going to respond effectively to this type of event, you really have to maintain that spirit. And so it's extremely appreciated from the public health side. I want to emphasize what Dr. Zahn said. I think IDSA has played a really crucial role in advocating for this kind of support for Congress, which really is going to help not just our patients, but the entire community. Absolutely. Dr. Siraj, I'll give you the final word. Yes, uh, IDSA and Global Health Committee have been really uh, front proponents of this global health response and uh, supporting uh, uh, low and middle income countries to up their uh, surveillance activities. 
really what we, I want to say is investing in strengthening capacity of limited resources countries to respond to threats like this, like coronavirus, is really critical, uh, not only for those countries, but also to ensure the security and safety of Americans, because that in this connected uh, global uh, world um, diseases uh, that emerge in the weakest area and less resource uh, endowed countries uh, are going to be in our shores in a very short period of time. So really those um, Alloc uh, allocations and uh, appropriations have to be looked in such a different view than uh, before. Thank you. And I'd like to thank all three of our panelists for taking time out of their increasingly busy schedules to share their expert insights with us today. And with that, I will turn it back to Nadia. At this time, we would like to thank our very knowledgeable panel, Drs. Andy Pavia, Matt Zahn, and Dodd Siraj. For the latest information and resources on the COVID-19 outbreak, visit IDSA's website, idsociety.org, and don't forget to follow us on social media. Tune in next time as another diverse panel of medical experts discusses the latest developments on the outbreak.